Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, what an incredible 48 hours it has been as COVID-19 grips Canada. We attack it from many angles. Everything from the economy to your mental health. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. All right, uh, we've talked about the COVID-19 virus. We're going to continue to do that. Uh, How has it spread in the last 24 hours? There's been uh, uh, several stories, including, as I mentioned, the Prime Minister's uh, wife testing positive. Uh, Also, an interesting aspect, the Minister of Health also said the virus could affect anywhere from 30% to 70% of Canadians. To talk more about uh, all of this, Ahmad Khalad is with us. Uh, He is a faculty member uh, in human and social sciences, medical doctor and health policy advisor, Wilfrid Laurier University, and is with us now. Ahmad, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Of course, happy to speak to you again. Uh, we are uh, w- awaiting the press conference from the Prime Minister, and as soon as that happens, we'll, uh, we'll cut away uh, to that. Uh, any idea, any thoughts where the Prime Minister should go moving forward on this? I think the big question right now from the Prime Minister is going to be about the travel. So we're hearing uh, from the early morning reports that there are going to be travel advisories across our airports with uh, some international ban on some destinations. Uh, we just heard from the uh, recent uh, press that they're going to be overseas flights are going to be limited to a couple of airports. There is no clear indication of which airports that will be. I think what Canada, the government's trying to do is uh, have better screening measures at only specific airports so we can control the entry and exit of people with possible COVID-19. Uh, what about uh, a nationwide policy? Some have said that all provinces mm-hmm. should be doing the same thing. It appears there's a patchwork at this point. Some provinces are pulling their kids out of school. Some are keeping them in. Is that the way to address this locally, or should there be some sort of nationwide policy here? I do agree that a nationwide policy is probably a much, much more effective. Uh, but as we know, levels of government function differently, and depending on jurisdictional uh, authority, that will play a big factor. We're seeing that the, that cases are different from each province, and each province is tre- treating this on their own uh, facts and data. So right now, Ontario has 60 cases, British Columbia has 53, Alberta has 23 cases as of now. Uh, that might change, and numbers will dictate what kind of policies each province will decide to move forward with. I think Ontario is taking a leadership role by... Uh, closing down schools. We were just hearing reports that universities on Ontario are moving towards cancelling all in classes uh, and asking faculty members to move to online learning. Uh, we're seeing more and more cancellation of large events in the province of Ontario. And I think time will only tell. Numbers are only increasing by the minute. Uh, what about the timing? And I guess, you know, there is no time like the present. But uh, are we waiting until numbers spike? And is, is, that, is that a good idea? Well, right now, I mean, you know, you bring up a good point. The risk level is still assessed as low. Uh, I will say this. I think what is happening is that uh, the crisis is causing a change in policy and viewpoint by the minute. Uh, So the big word everybody's talking about right now is self-isolation. Our viewers and our readers will continue to hear this often. I get asked, what does that mean? What do we mean by self-isolation? Limit your social gatherings. Try to stay at home as much as possible. There is no better time now to think about what uh, projects you have to do at home and get to it and limit your exposure outside as much as possible. It's so funny you should say that, doctor, because I'm thinking, well, it's a good time to do your taxes, isn't it? Yeah, it's a good time <laughs> to do your taxes to get your projects in the home. I'm not trying to lighten the mood of our yeah. very serious yeah, topic. Yeah. What I'm trying to do here is 
calm the public. I think people are scared, and rightly so. People are worried about what does that mean, you know? We need to get better at, at getting the messages simplified to the public uh, of what we mean by self-isolation and what Canada is moving forward on. Uh, you, you brought this up, and let's expand a little bit more on sure. this. What about self-isolation? If you are, I mean, we're coming up to March break, the kids are now off for three weeks, um, and, and if you're a normal, healthy family, how do you address this? We know what to do when you become sick, self-isolate and tell your doctor and, or uh, uh, medical officials and such. But, but what about if you're healthy? How, what should we be doing? Uh, so the big thing about self-isolation now, if you are a healthy individual where there's no symptoms, I would say keep monitoring others around you. So when you go to the gym, the hairdresser, the grocery stores, if you feel like there are people around you that are exhibiting signs, which is cough or sneezing, this does not mean to become paranoid, but to just be more vigilant. I think self-isolation is so much more about being considerate when stocking up on items. So uh, yesterday we've been seeing news uh, like Costco and grocery stores, the lineups are insane. Uh, and so my thing is uh, keep, uh, keep in mind that it is a community effort. Uh, and so if you already have enough supplies at home, there's no need for you to be rushing the stores. Uh, and if you're a healthy individual, then life is, uh, moves on as usual. Uh, try to limit exposure to large events. The big question now is about self-isolation for people who have symptoms. Uh, and the recommendation is to isolate yourself in one room of the house. If you have access to more than one bathroom in the house, to only use one bathroom. Uh, and to keep uh, you know, safe, clean hygiene wiping it down surfaces, avoiding contact with other people in the home, and limit your interaction with the public uh, coming into your house. What about if you have a situation like the Prime Minister's in, where there's a member of the family that has tested positive? I mean, and I'm sure the Prime Minister has access to to more than what the average person does. But that being said, what would you do? Is is this can, can do the other people have to leave the house? Should you keep this person isolated to one room? How would you how would you cope with this if there was one person in the family that tested positive? Reports coming in that uh, Prime Minister Trudeau and his children are not getting tested for COVID-19, although his wife has been tested positive. Uh, And I think that's actually a great example for all of us, because it tells me that the Prime Minister understands that even though he is the Prime Minister of Canada, he is not trying to put an extra burden on our healthcare system. He's not getting tested because he's not exhibiting any symptoms or signs of COVID, to be very clear here. Uh, and I think everybody's moving towards that isolation. So uh, his wife is probably, I'm not sure about this, but I'm quite confident that she is probably inside self-isolation, which means there's a distance between her and the prime minister and her children at this time. Uh, you also bring up another great point. So if somebody, and let's use the prime minister for an example, uh, his wife has tested positive, there's no need for him to be tested simply because, you know, uh, of the relationship between him and his wife? Or is it a, a situation where until you're actually showing symptoms, it's the waste of a test or, or testing time um, uh, to bother with the process unless you're actually showing symptoms? I think the big message here that needs to be loud and clear is we need to be very considerate of our current healthcare system. Our healthcare providers are overburdened, under-resourced. And so uh, I urge everybody to consider twice before rushing to our ERs and calling up our healthcare providers if there is no need to do so. Uh, and the need comes with if you are exhibiting signs and symptoms 
or you've been in very close proximity to somebody who has COVID-19. It's very hard for me to comment on the situation with the prime minister because we obviously don't know how close in proximity he was to his wife and, and whether there is, a. am sure there are measures put in place there. But the message for everybody out there is, uh, you know, if you have symptoms, call your healthcare provider first and foremost before you go to this to our hospitals that are at our family physicians. Otherwise, uh, let's be considerate that this is a community effort. My big message today is, uh, when in doubt, do not freak out and just follow the facts. And the facts are telling us if you don't have symptoms right now, if you haven't been close to somebody who uh, has COVID-19 or you have traveled uh, to destinations where we have a high travel uh, alert, then the risk assessment is very low for you. Uh, what about the health minister saying that uh, and some are saying great for uh, being transparent. Others are saying, you know, maybe this is too much. What about the health minister saying the other day that 30 to, it's safe to say somewhere between, and this is a, a wide margin when you think about it, but 30 to 70 percent of uh, the public could become infected? Yeah, so I struggled with that one a little bit. I'll be very honest, and this is more of a personal opinion here. Uh, I struggled with that because I was worried that that was raising the alarm to a level that will lead people to be a bit more hysteric uh, about the situation. 30 to 70% of all Canadians getting COVID, yes, that caused a massive reaction. I've noticed it everywhere on all fronts. Uh, I think that I would speculate that the key point of doing that was to just to say that this is a community effort. I think where the government, what is trying to do right now is to urge all of us to act uh, together uh, as if everybody has a role to play in this, to get ahead of this. So uh, I think that was the intention behind those numbers to indicate the seriousness of the outbreak, the pandemic now, uh, and to, for, to foreshadow what's about to come ahead, which is this idea of self-isolation. We're seeing it more and more. We're seeing actions being put in place. It will be very interesting to hear what Prime Minister Trudeau will say any minute now on the Canada's response to COVID right now. Uh, and we are hearing good news uh, from the medical community that we are making progress at identifying this virus and, and breaking it down and therefore coming up uh, with a, vi- a vaccine eventually. Correct. I think that, that those news are very, very positive. But I must remind everybody that stuff takes time. Uh, it's yeah. not going to happen overnight. In the meantime, it is a community effort to fight a communicable disease like COVID, we need to work together as a community, and there are ways for us to go do about that. Uh, what would you say to those? I mean, it, it appears that the uh, the prime minister is going to announce if you don't have to travel this spring break, you don't travel. Um, that being said, there are some that will probably continue just simply because there's time off, even whether they're doing it locally. What advice do you have for parents, for families? Like, should they just seriously not go, uh, you know, travel at this time of the year or or, or, or how do you respond to the, the, the family that's questioning what to do who may have already purchased a trip? I sympathize with those families. We actually already have an answer for that. We're not waiting for the prime minister to confirm this. Theresa Tam, just a few minutes ago, our Canada's public health officer, uh, chief public health officer, said uh, urging all Canadians to cancel all yeah. non-essential travel. Yeah. Uh, and this question, is, I think, is the question of the hour, which is the travel ban, travel advisory. Uh, I actually just posted a checklist to, uh, to people to advise them what to do uh, about travel. I, that's the number one question I'm getting now. I'm going uh, to the U.S. to ski this weekend. Should I do that? Yeah. I plan a trip to go to Italy next week or France. The answer is no. You should not travel if you don't need to. Uh, if it's not an urgent situation, I urge everybody to uh, reconsider their travel plans. 
airlines have taken a leadership position in saying, okay, we're going to waive fees for change, take advantage of that. I am not sure how much longer uh, Air Canada, WestJet, and other airlines will continue to offer uh, free change waivers. So that is a good time for to take advantage of that. Check the travel.gc.ca for any travel advisory. And for any Canadians who are already abroad and looking to come home, if you haven't registered on Canada's Government of Canada's uh, Travel Advisories Emergency Abroad, please do so. It is travel.gc.ca slash traveling slash registration. This will help us inform the, the Canada government to inform you of any emergencies or travel plans and to keep you up to current on what's going to happen when you do come back to Canada. Are you surprised how fluid this story is, at how oh, it keeps changing, even as the day progresses, yesterday especially? Oh, my God. I mean, yes, yes, yes. I, I've noticed that even just in terms of numbers from 9 o'clock in the morning to now, we're seeing the numbers increase. I think that's the, fluid, the fluidity of the nature of the crisis. Uh, and this is what crises do, right? That they test our systems, they test our knowledge base, and our adaptiveness and our, uh, how quick we can act on evidence. And I think the message from Canada has been so crystal clear to the rest of the world that we're not acting on speculation, we're not acting on fear, we're acting on science and evidence. Mm. Uh, and I think time will come to show how Canada has been so good at that, both uh, from uh, media, from uh, government, but also from the general public. I think everybody's trying to stay calm under the circumstances and to figure out the way ahead. Uh, touch on a, a, a little bit, Ahmad, about the mental health angle of this. We've heard, you know, a lot of people who, who may suffer from anxiety or such uh, starting to feel the pressure of this. Any advice there? Yeah, so that's a very key question right now. I am, I am genuinely concerned about the mental health of people. You know, when we say self-isolation, we're also talking about people being away from loved ones. Uh, that will put a burden on people's mental health. In addition, now we're seeing the closures of schools uh, and some or a work environment is going to cause people to work from home. So we're distancing people from the general public. Uh, mental health is a concern. I think that will be interesting to see what the government will have to come forward in t- terms of addressing the mental health. Uh, uh, my advice would be that if you are experiencing any issues when it comes to your mental health status, to please reach out to loved ones. Uh, family health care providers, there are mechanisms in place to address any emergency uh, mental health crises. But in the meantime, rely on your friends and your inner support system to help you get through this. I, for sure, am one who's doing that. I have my close circle of friends and family that I am reaching out to when I feel like this is just taking a toll on me. It's too much information, too fast of an evolving situation at the moment. Ahmad Khalid has been with us, faculty member in human and social sciences, uh, medical doctor and health provi- uh, policy advisor, Wilford Laurier University. Ahmad, as always, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Happy to speak. Thank you very much. Let's bring in Steve Jordans, uh, professor of psychology, University of Toronto. He is with us now. Steve, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. No problem, Scott. Good to be with you. Some are taking this in stride. I mean, obviously, with the school closures and what we're hearing today, uh, it's it's certainly reinforcing the seriousness of all of this. Some taking it in stride. Some getting incredibly anxious about this. We're seeing this with the hoarding that's going on. How does an event like this affect our mental health? Well, I mean, it really is, especially if we take this event in the context of, you know, first the Australian wildfires where it looks like the environment's kind of going the wrong way and we don't know what to do about it. And then we had the missile stuff with Iran where we felt like we could be under attack at any moment. And now we have the COVID virus and all these kind of events 
can really lead us to, to feel helpless, to be quite honest, like these things are happening to us and there's nothing we can do about it. Uh, and that is really a, a recipe for anxiety and depression both. So, so it's not surprising at all that, that we're seeing a lot of that. Um, and, and I think some of the panic buying you're seeing is, is an attempt by people to exert some level of control, try to find something they can do um, to feel like they are doing something. And, and really the only option seems to be um, to prepare. We, I mean, it's starting to feel like we're all going to, I, I myself am under a voluntary quarantine right now. And it feels like, you know, many people could end up there. So I think that's the one concrete thing they can think about. Well, I can at least, you know, be prepared in case I end up staying home for two weeks. Uh, I don't want to get too personal. Tell us about your sure. quarantine. Yeah, I was at a conference in New Orleans, uh, an EdTech conference last weekend, and uh, originally we had just got an email that said somebody at another conference in the same hotel has tested positive, so be wary. Uh, but then a close colleague of mine uh, started to get a little symptomatic, so at that point we all, everybody who had contact with him is, is wow. staying home until we at least hear that he's negative. So how do uh, how do we cope with something like this? How do we keep it all in perspective? Yeah, I, I mean, a, a few things. So uh, first of all, you know, in terms of perspective itself, there are a lot of people kind of, you know, comparing this to the flu, and there are differences, and, and there is reasons why this is mysterious. But in the grand scheme of things, you know, most viruses come, they spread big time, and then they disappear uh, quickly. So, I mean, one thing to kind of keep in mind is is there will be an end. There will probably be a growth before that end. And, and you know, that's the thing, the mystery that kind of keeps us all going. But but I certainly, you know, a few recommendations I would have for people mental health-wise is, is first of all, take some breaks. Um, uh, last night, I, I joke around, my, my wife and I watched Pawn Stars for an hour. And, and it was nice. <laughs> it was just nice because it was away from... So, you know, I think you could almost yeah. ration yeah. Uh, your news exposure to some extent because mm-hmm. the news kind of works like an obsessive compulsive. Like an obsessive compulsive would naturally keep thinking about something over and over again. But if you keep your TV on, you're going to keep getting prompted by this yeah. this helplessness. So, what about kids? What about the younger viewers? Yeah, well, I, I mean, I, I think they must be very confused by it. I, I wonder if, you know, things like, for those of us who aren't so young, seeing sports come to a halt is something we never thought we'd see in our lifetime. Yeah. And it might be the case that that kind of impacts us more, like that seems more dramatic to us than kids who maybe, you know, haven't, haven't expected it to be there all the time. But they certainly have to be aware that something's up, that, that the adults are acting strangely. <laughs> um, and, yeah. I mean, and why do we have so much toilet paper in the house? Yeah, exactly. Uh, what I do mean, you tell lot, your kids? What do you say? Well, you know, a, a lot. Um, so, so I don't have kids in the house anymore. They have kids. Uh, so we have grandkids. Um, I haven't had a chance to talk to them or interact with them since this really blew up. Um, but, you know, I think the biggest thing kids need to know is, is that they'll be all right and that they are loved. And, and in fact, from all of us, those social connections are the antidote to anxiety. So, you know, I would also suggest anybody, this is a great time to reach out and talk to your mom and talk to your, you know, family members and, and reconnect and your close friends and just share experiences, share the feelings of anxiety, you know, know that you're not alone, but also, you know, have that feeling that you have the support network that's, that cares about you. And I think for kids, that's especially important. They want the security, they want the love. That's what is very important to them. So I would make sure they're feeling that. 
Uh, as you alluded to earlier, a, a lot going on in the world. We live in a very divisive world, it seems, right now. Is there a positive to come out of this? At the end, you know, we're all the same, and this is what's really important, this one thing. Does it, does it change us moving forward? Well, I mean, just about any time we see any sort of major tragedy, and I even think like, you know, the Young Street guy driving down Young Street, almost always after the tragedy is sort of contained, um, there's grief, but then there's a social pulling together. So anytime a a community kind of gets through a tragedy together, you almost always see some sort of pulling together. Now, the irony in this case is in previous cases, those pulling togethers were like big gatherings of people, you know, <laughs> talking and, yeah. and and saying, "Hey, we did this together," and blah blah blah. Um, this that's what makes this one, uh, I think, a little unique. Is that, you know, yes, I, I myself said we want social connections, and yet everybody's saying social distancing, you know, and so physically, it's kind of like we have to try to find ways of connecting that's non-physical. Um, and I wonder if that won't be. Um, I certainly wouldn't say a silver lining, but but a facet of this going forward in the future that, you know, will people ever be really comfortable in large gatherings? Will we see a, a bit of a hangover of this where, you know, where people are a little hesitant about this now? Um, I'm not sure. As far as silver linings, I mean, well, one hope is that things like working from home, that a lot of employers see, you know what, this this works out okay. Yeah. Um, and maybe a lot of people can lead more sane lives and, and the 401's a little less clogged and... You know, things like that may uh, may come out of this. Uh, social distance, uh, distancing, will that become the new norm, do you think? Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know. So at that conference, I mean, everything really happens on Sunday night for me. I think that's when it got real. And when I went to the conference on Friday, that was the issue. Like, do you shake hands or do you yeah. not? And there were still hmm. people kind of stuck in between. And then by Sunday night, the handshake is dead. <laughs> like, I, I think we are... You know, going to be a little bit more hesitant, being too much near one another, and a lot of these rituals that have been there since the dawn mm. of time may suddenly change. Steve Jordans has been with us, professor of psychology, University of Toronto, talking about the mental health angle of COVID nineteen and what the event does to our mindset. Steve, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thank you, Scott. Have a great day. You too. Uh- You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. McMaster researchers alongside Sunnybrook researchers, and this is the great thing, watching the medical come uh, together like this, the medical community, uh, have isolated the COVID-19 virus. What does that all mean? Let's bring in Dr. RNJ Banerjee, postdoctoral fellow at McMaster University and is on the line now. Doctor, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, in layman's terms, I know that's sometimes difficult, but explain exactly what where we are and, and where we are with your research right now. So what we've been able to do is we've taken clinical specimens and we've isolated the virus. What that means is we've generated virus stocks, which can now be used for vaccine development, therapeutic testing, and diagnostics as well. So that means you have samples of the virus you can send out and use as uh, sort of a guinea pig while you're applying other technology. Yes, that, and also shared with laboratories across Canada that will help them with diagnostics. How difficult was it to arrive at this step? Or is this just um, uh, part of your world and something that is is matter of fact? Or was this difficult? So um, I don't think it was difficult, but there's definitely some luck that comes into play because when you think about it, a clinical specimen, you may miss a virus in the specimen or you may catch it. It all depends on when you sample the patient and what samples you have, if the virus stays alive in your sample. So I think, I think all of my experience as a PhD student, when I was a PhD student, I worked on coronaviruses. 
So that came into play, and we happened to get the right kind of sample from Sunnybrook and had all the paperwork done for CL3, uh, the high containment labs. So the whole team kind of came together, and I think that's why we could do it. Uh, talk about the medical community coming together on this and how imperative it is to, to, to break down those silos. I think it is very important, like you said, you've got to align the silos and like completely destroy them, right? So you want the experts, but what you want to do is you want to align these experts so they can come together with an interdisciplinary team. And that's what we did. So the physicians had access to patient material, but you can't fight what you don't understand. So that's where we come in as basic scientists. We can take the virus and we can, we can study it. We understand how it interacts with your immune system, for example. And all of this goes back to the physicians where they can then decide the best regimen of treatment. So who all was involved in this process? How many came together for this? Oh, so if I were to name the whole team, I think I, can, I could tell you uh, Samira Mubaraka, Dr. Mubaraka from Sunnybrook. She's an infectious disease physician and also a researcher. She's, she's kind of got uh, her hands into both the pots. So she's got access to patient samples, and she's also a researcher, so she's got a level three lab space. Then I connected with Samira, and I went in because I had coronavirus expertise, and she trusted me that I'd be able to do it. And then there was Rob Kozak, who was on the diagnostic side of things, who knew that if we could propagate the virus, if we could grow it, Rob could quickly confirm it and he could tell us he could positively ID the virus. And then we also had Samira's entire lab team, so Lily, Patrick, a lot of people came together, I think, including biosafety officers at U of T. And why is this important now? What is the next stage? What happens moving forward as a result of this? The first thing we're going to do is we're going to extract the nucleic acids, the, the RNA from the virus, because that's critical for diagnostic tests. If your diagnostic test doesn't work and you don't have a positive sample, you don't know if the patient is negative or the person who was running the diagnostic made a mistake. So you have to have positive control in your diagnostics. So we can generate that in, like, we can generate lots of it for labs across Canada. And moving on, what we're trying to do is here at McMaster, we're trying to get the virus back and study it, study the biology, study how the virus, virus does what it does in human cells. So, so this is uh, not only about understanding the virus, but coming up with better testing of it as we move forward through this event. Yes, and we're going to take this even beyond what you said. What we're going to do is we think the viruses come from bats, and that's what I've been doing for the last six years is looking at coronaviruses right. from, from bats into humans. So we want to be able to study this and see how we can predict future pandemics or future outbreaks. And if we can learn from bats how they can coexist with these viruses and maybe have therapeutic targets developed for humans. Uh, we have certainly heard uh, the story and how this developed through Wuhan, China, and such, uh, and, and they have eliminated, or say they've eliminated a lot of those wildlife markets and such. How much of a dent will that make in all of this? So I think, I think controlling, like, I like the idea, I think the global scientific community likes the idea of not having a wildlife market. Because, you know, with wildlife, you cannot predict what, what viruses yeah. you might have. But what, what, what is critical is how do you enforce something like this? Yeah. What if you're, like, how do you enforce a lifestyle choice of yeah. people who rely on hunting? So that's, that's going to be tricky, I think, but it's, it's, a, good, it's a good way of, uh, it's a good place to start, I guess. Are you, are you concerned that this virus could mutate? Uh, obviously, um, uh, and thank goodness, it doesn't appear to be as fatal, uh, but it certainly does spread incredibly quickly from human to human. Uh, what does concern you about this uh, moving forward? So the longer a virus stays within human population, it's going to evolve and adapt. That's what viruses do. But is it going to become more lethal? We don't know. And that's why it's critical to isolate these viruses from different populations. So when a virus arrives in Canada on a plane, you can isolate the virus and you can study it. 
And that will tell you if the virus is more pathogenic or less pathogenic. And that's essentially what some of the studies we're going to look at. What are your thoughts at where North America is now considering how this has progressed in the last couple of months uh, originally from China? So it's the virus is it's it's like it's a pandemic like the WHO call it. So every it's affected more than two continents and it's on every it's in North America. We know the United States is having a problem with it. So I think uh, it's a matter of time before we start seeing more cases. But I'm hoping that with all the funding that's going in from the provinces and the federal government, that the diagnostic labs and the hospitals are prepped for it. What can we do now uh, as a country? We've just heard the Prime Minister speak a little earlier on. He's suggesting uh, no non-essential travel to uh, uh, international uh, destinations and such. What can we do now to, to slow this down? I think we would just kind of we should kind of work on our personal hygiene, which we should anyways. That's how you control flu. So wash your hands, don't mm-hmm. touch your eyes, don't touch your nose, don't touch your mouth. But in addition, something else that I'd like to stress just personally is this: this don't, don't call it a foreign virus, don't call it a China virus, don't stigmatize a certain certain population of people because this is you know these outbreaks can happen anywhere, right? It's come likely come from a wildlife. So I think we need to come together as a country and we got to look out for each other. I think. What would you say to Canadians who are concerned about all of this, especially what we've seen in the last 24, 48 hours with uh, closures of events, uh, schools, sports uh, facilities and such? Uh, as someone who studies this, how concerned should we be? What do, you, what do you say to Canadians? So I think everyone's concerned, and that's why the government's taking all of these. I mean, universities have closed classes and everything's been moved online. You know, there, there are travel restrictions and travel recommendations. So I think the government is being as proactive as you possibly can, considering this is a virus that we haven't studied. The scientific community doesn't understand it. So just, just follow the guidelines. And again, I'd stress on washing your hands and don't touch your mouth, don't touch your nose. So I think we, if, if we do this, we'll be okay. Uh, should we restrict travel more? Do you think that we, you know, I mean, we've certainly seen uh, in other parts of the world how they've, how they've, uh, you know, shuttered cities and such. Are we doing enough in that respect? So, um, I, I, can, I, this is, I can make a personal comment on it. I had a trip coming up in, in May, and I might most likely will cancel it because, not because, it's all the hassle that comes with, will I get quarantined when I right. come back? What happens when I get to my destination country? Will I get quarantined in that country? There are lots of, lots of uh, ifs and buts at this point in time. So I think, I, I think yeah, um, just go with the recommendations, yes. So, Doctor, with the information that uh, you and the people from Sunnybrook have come up with, how does this spread around the world? How does this information get passed along? Is this, is this part of a worldwide discussion? Yes, so what we're going to do next week, or hopefully in the next couple of weeks, we'll put out the whole genome sequence. What that means is we'll put out the identity of the virus on a, on a website that's available to all researchers, right? We're also looking at collaborating and sharing the virus for with, with, with regulated and certified labs that have access to controlled facilities where you can manipulate and study this virus. You must feel pretty positive of where your team is at this point. Uh, do you feel that you've got a handle on this? And, and, and what about a vaccine moving forward? Uh, so I, I personally don't work on a vaccine, so I'm, I'm very interested in looking at how the virus does in human cells because that is, that's information we need to develop. What's more important is therapeutic drugs and, and, and um, drugs, really, because a vaccine has got to go through regulatory processes and, right. and it's not going to be instant. But what we can do is if you can test FDA-approved drugs, these are drugs that are approved for other viruses, mm. you take that database of drugs and you test it against this virus. 
we've cultured the life bars so you can get those drug candidates in and test them. Right. Then you can fast track and use them in patients. That's really what we need, I think. Wow, that's incredible. Dr. Aaron J. Banerjee has been with us, postdoctoral fellow at McMaster University. McMaster researchers, alongside Sunnybrook, have isolated the COVID-19 virus, uh, which will help with testing and diagnosis moving forward. Doctor, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Good luck. Thanks for having me. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. We've talked about how Canada has uh, coped, reacted to COVID-19. It's interesting. I'm watching coverage in the United States, and it seems they're talking about things we were talking about a couple of weeks ago. Uh, how are they doing in all of this? Let's find out and go down there. Reggie Cicchini is with us, Washington producer and correspondent with Global News. And he is with us now. Reggie, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Happy Friday. Uh, back at you. Boy, it's been a turbulent 24, 48 hours for us up here. Uh, schools closing, uh, you know, the situation with sports teams and such and, and universities. Uh, what is it like down there? It, it seems when I'm watching coverage that they're sort of talking about or just becoming familiar with things that we up here have been talking about for a while. Is that accurate or is that a naive perception? No, that's an accurate uh, statement and an accurate uh, view of things down here uh, because there has been kind of a, a bit of mixed messaging coming from the federal government to the people of the United States when it comes to the severity of COVID-19. The president downplayed this for weeks, simply said that very few people would come into contact with this, that the numbers could potentially be at zero uh, the day after he came out and spoke in the in the White House briefing room. And clearly that hasn't been the case. And the president is really trying to ensure that uh, the message that he originally said stays on uh, on kind of target to where he wants it to be. So it, it's been a confusing last couple of days. And, you know, we'll have to hear what the president says when he speaks in nine minutes as to whether or not the message becomes a little more clear. Uh, let's talk about that address the other night. And as you mentioned, another one coming up very shortly. Uh, many have said that this, when you have situations like this, this is a leader's defining moment uh, for everyone around the world. Um, what about, is will this be his defining moment? Although we've said this a bazillion times and at the end it depends on what camp you're in. Will this change any of that, do you think? Is this different this time out? I think it is different this time around because the president was giving an address to the nation not based on any kind of partisan issue that was going on. This isn't the Russia investigation. This isn't Robert Mueller's investigation. Uh, this isn't impeachment or anything that has kind of uh, uh, kind of flown around the president's uh, time in office over the last three years. This is uh, a public health crisis, which the president knew about back in January and has repeatedly said came out of nowhere. And the administration realistically and really has bungled the uh, uh, the ability to kind of get it under control in a timely fashion. We knew that this was going to be uh, an epidemic turning pandemic and becoming widespread across the country. Uh, this simple fact here is that the president and his close advisors and his team have not been able to stay on the same message and therefore have created a sense of angst and panic across the country. Uh, as you said, when this becomes partisan, he it's either winner, there's winner, loser, winners or losers. It's this team or that team. Uh, he even, uh, in a tweet, I think, was slamming previous administrations for them not grabbing onto this. Is that going to sit well with Americans considering this is an issue that crosses partisan lines? I think that this is going to be an issue going forward. I mean, look, the president uh, frequently has tried to not take the blame for anything, despite the fact that sometimes uh, the president kind of 
of digs himself a hole and has a hard time getting out of it. Uh, this time around, you know, blaming the Obama administration or trying to blame the Centers for Disease Control for not kind of having testing ramped up falls on the shoulders of President Trump. His administration has actively cut uh, funding to the CDC. It's cut funding to the National Institutes of Health. The president has uh, uh, fired his pandemic uh, advisor that was inside the White House in 2018. So the president really has his own administration and himself to blame for some of the issues in the United States uh, when it comes to this virus. And he's simply trying to point that finger elsewhere. We saw it uh, simply when he spoke on Wednesday night and he, he was talking about this virus as a quote unquote foreign virus. It's not a foreign virus. This is a virus that will infect anyone that's around him. But his advisors are trying to make it seem like this is simply not an American problem. Uh, what about the president's health? There has been some chatter. Uh, obviously, uh, those in and around the White House were close to others who had been exposed. Uh, do we know anything about his uh, uh, exposure in any way or anybody he's been around or what his health is like? We haven't been told whether or not he's been tested. Uh, there have been calls for the president to be tested and for the information to be released publicly, given the fact that he was standing with the Brazilian leadership team and the Brazilian president. Uh, it's conflicted reports as to whether he has tested or not tested positive for COVID-19. But uh, a, a staff administration person of, of uh, President Bolsonaro has tested positive, and they were all in very close contact with the president. The president himself was also at the CPAC Conservative Conference uh, just south of D.C. in Maryland, where a number of people have tested positive as well. And there are kind of uh, a growing number of calls out there by saying if the president's not getting tested and potentially could be ill, uh, there's a risk for him to infect other senior leadership members in Washington. And then you end up in a uh, serious political crisis on top of an ongoing health crisis. We heard on in his speech uh, the other night, he, he said that uh, travel restrictions uh, to, the, to Europe, uh, except he exempted the United Kingdom. And he actually said that this was related to not only passengers, but cargo. Uh, whoever wrote that speech, it was pretty obvious he was reading from it. I mean, how do they make such errors? Well, I mean, sometimes you have to remember that the president often will go off script. We don't yeah. know uh, whether or not things that he was saying were fully uh, on that teleprompter in front of him. Right. Uh, but when it came to what the president was saying, I mean, you could tell that that speech was written by uh, policy advisors, namely Stephen Miller, the way that the language was used to describe uh, the virus and describe how America should be responding to this. But it was also said that that speech was written only a couple of hours before the president went in, and he seemed very unprepared for the remarks that he was about to deliver. So that goes to uh, kind of speak to more of that mixed messaging and, and bit of fear that it creates in the U.S. public. Reggie Giacchini has been with us, Washington producer and correspondent with Global News. Make sure you're watching. Global News tonight at 5.30 and 6 for more on this. And as Reggie said, uh, he'll be covering the press conference uh, with the president. Reggie, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you. We know yesterday afternoon, Education Minister came out and said that after March break, uh, schools would close for another two weeks, uh, effectively keeping the kids out of class until April 15th with this year's edition of uh, spring break going on three weeks. To talk more about all of this and how it affects things moving forward, let's bring in Alex Johnstone, Chair, Hamilton Wentworth District School Board, and is with us now. Alex, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Good afternoon, Scott. Uh, Alex, I'm sure your uh, day is, uh, is all up in the air as well with all of this new information that seems to be coming in almost hourly. Uh, how does this extended break alter plans for the school board moving forward? What does this mean for you? The, the news was surprising to our board and boards across the province. Um, that said, I think that it really speaks to how quickly and serious the situation is evolving. Uh, with that, uh, 
our board work directly with public health authorities, look our local public health authorities, and we took direction from the Ministry of Education on the recommendation of the chief medical officer to close schools across Ontario. Um, our local team immediately began to meet and to discuss all the implications for that. Uh, and to put a plan in place, uh, which includes a deep clean of all of our schools over uh, the time period that our schools are closed, so over the next three weeks, uh, to ensure that when we do start welcoming students and staff back into our facilities, uh, that they have been fully cleaned. And um, uh, with that, uh, we also uh, have been working to identify what services would remain open and which would not. Uh, what this does mean for families is that, uh, similar to all boards across the province, all services uh, are are closing. So all of our elementary and secondary schools are closing. Uh, our education centre, childcare centres, early on, um, early on, child and family centres are also closing, as well as all off-site locations connected to HWDSB. There was some chatter. Let me interrupt you there for a sec, Alex. Mm -hmm. Uh, There was some chatter about school uh, daycares and such, but those, in fact, will be closed as well, the ones that are related to the board. Is that correct? That is correct. So across the province, um, all all child care services connected to school boards Mm -hmm. uh, are closing, um, as well as March break camps, uh, community use of school rentals, before and after school programs Mm. are also cancelled, as well excursions, board meetings, co-op placements, uh, mental health re- uh, treatment programs run through the school board, uh, and any kind of school events and athletics, including uh, uh, OSSSA as well, as all of those are, are being cancelled uh, during the ministerial order. And uh, until uh, we do have... Um, uh, uh, I guess, notice from public health, um, unless otherwise we're noti- notified by public health that uh, we can return back into the schools. Uh, how concerned are you about the loss of those two weeks? Uh, many have asked if the time will be added on the end of the school year, uh, especially considering there's been some strike action uh, over uh, the last several weeks and such. Does that, does that put the year in jeopardy and all? Do you have to add time at the other end? So that's a decision that is being weighed uh, or would, will be weighed by the Ministry of Education. Uh, it's important to note that um, uh, our students um, across the province, especially up north, uh, routinely experience large amounts of snow days. So it's unclear at this point if, um, if it's going past uh, those amount of days uh, and uh, how much left of the curriculum um, uh that our, I guess, um, that our staff would be able to uh, find professional ways to uh, focus on the core curriculum and uh, have that, uh, I guess, completed by the end of June. Uh, when will we know more about how it does affect the school year? Will we know more? Will we know more on that by the time the kids are back, April fifth? Uh, we would hope so. Yeah. Uh, we will continue to work with the ministry on that. There are many important questions being asked. Uh, certainly we have many students who are hoping to graduate, mm. uh, how uh, this will impact uh, their acceptance into colleges and universities and apprenticeships. Uh, it also, we have questions uh, with regards to 
different uh, literacy tests that are required uh, for some students who are graduating, uh, and further uh, what the impact will be on um, on uh, on a variety of different tests that would be required uh, for. Um, for graduation. There's also other concerns as well. Uh, certainly we're hearing many concerns from uh, parents in the wider community with regards to child care uh, and our most vulnerable students. When we think about um, uh, students who rely daily on breakfast programs and lunch programs. And um, I was actually reading on uh, the World Health Organization website last night, as well as the Center for D- Disease Control. And both organizations are recommending that when communities are preparing uh, for taking action with regards to COVID, uh, that they consider our most vulnerable communities and how uh, especially feeding programs uh, will be continued. Mm. Yeah, you don't realize how many, uh, there's multi-layers to this onion, that's for sure. Uh, They're now saying kids back by April 5th after March break. Any reason to believe, and obviously we don't have a crystal ball here, that that could be extended or is that a hard date? Everybody's back April 5th. Any word on that? At this point, that is the date that the ministerial order has provided. Um, however, our top health officials will continue to, through the province, will continue to monitor and assess the situation. And if it does continue to escalate, then the public would receive more information. Um, but, you know, this strategy, my understanding is that the hopes is to slow down the spread of the virus so that our healthcare system can respond to it in its uh, best form. Any advice for students or parents uh, during this extended break? What should they do? Should they be reviewing? Should they continue on? Is it, Will there be any sort of instruction today, for example, of, of you know how to cope with this extended break? We're asking parents to go on to our HWDSB website, um, connect through their schools, ensure that your contact information is up to date, uh, sign up for newsletters if you have not done so already, because that is going to be the best form of communication. Um, further, uh, the Ministry of Education has announced that they will be providing some materials online. Um, so uh, information for parents, and uh, so parents should con- continue to connect through the Ministry of Education website as well, uh, and uh, to continue to be safe, continue to wash your hands, continue to uh, implement all the best practices that are being recommended by Hamilton Public Health. Are there any options for e-learning at this point, Alex? We certainly ser- heard that the, some of the colleges and universities are moving in that direction. Any options at that point at this level? At this point, we are at the beginning stages where we are taking um, immediate action to ensure the health and safety of our students and staff and the wider community. As we begin to find out more information, we will certainly be sharing that with the public. No, but I mean, is there any option for e-learning within the board as it stands right now? Is that an option? Uh, so we, we currently have our current e-learning courses, um, but uh, everything is suspended right. until um, until the, the two weeks after March break. All right. Alex Johnstone has been with us, Chair Hamilton-Wentworth District School Board, uh, talking about how the schools will adjust uh, with an extended March break and then when the kids come back afterwards on April 5th. Alex, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Good luck with all this. Thank you, Scott. 
The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.